Book Three, Chapter Twenty Five of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Three, Chapter Twenty Five. And he did face it through. The next three months were the bitterest months of Ellesmere's life. They were marked by anguished mental struggle, by a consciousness of painful separation from the soul nearest to his own and by a constantly increasing sense of oppression, of closing avenues and narrowing alternatives, which for weeks together seemed to hold the mind in a grip whence there was no escape. That struggle was not hurried and embittered by the bodily presence of the squire. Mr. Wendover went off to Italy a few days after the conversation we have described. But though he was not present in the flesh, the great book of his life was in Ellesmere's hands. He had formally invited Ellesmere's remarks upon it, and the air of Muirwell seemed still echoing with his sentences, still astir with his thoughts. That curious instinct of pursuit, that avid, imperious wish to crush an irritating resistance which his last walk with Ellesmere had first awakened in him with any strength, persisted. He wrote to Robert from abroad, and the proud, fastidious scholar had never taken more pains with anything than with those letters. Robert might have stopped them, might have cast the whole matter from him with one resolute effort. In other relations he had well enough, and to spare. Was it an unexpected weakness of fibre that made it impossible, that had placed him in this way at the squire's disposal? Half the world would answer yes. Might not the other half plead that in every generation there is a minority of these mobile, impressionable, defenceless natures, who are ultimately at the mercy of experience, at the mercy of thought, at the mercy, shall we say, of truth, and that, in fact, it is from this minority that all human advance comes. During these three miserable months it cannot be said, poor Ellesmere, that he attempted any systematic study of Christian evidence. His mind was too much torn, his heart too sore. He pounced feverishly on one test-point after another, on the Pentateuch, the Prophets, the relation of the New Testament to the thoughts and beliefs of its time, the Gospel of St. John, the evidence as to the resurrection, the intellectual and moral conditions surrounding the formation of the canon. His mind swayed hither and thither, driven from each resting place in turn by the pressure of some new difficulty. And, let it be said again, all through, the only constant element in the whole dismal process was his trained historical sense. If he had gone through this conflict at Oxford, for instance, he would have come out of it unscathed, for he would simply have remained throughout it ignorant of the true problems at issue. As it was, the keen instrument he had sharpened so laboriously on indifferent material now ploughed its agonising way, bit by bit, into the most intimate recesses of thought and faith. Much of the actual struggle he was able to keep from Catherine's view, as he had vowed to himself to keep it. For after the squire's departure, Mrs. Darcy, too, went joyously up to London to flutter a while through the golden alleys of Mayfair, and Ellesmere was left once more in undisturbed possession of the Muirwell Library. There for a while, on every day—oh, pitiful relief—he could hide himself from the eyes he loved. But, after all, married love allows of nothing but the shallowest concealments. Catherine had already had one or two alarms. Once, in Robert's study, among a tumbled mass of books he had pulled out in search of something missing, and which she was putting in order, she had come across that very book on the prophecies which at a critical moment had so deeply affected Ellesmere. It lay open, and Catherine was caught by the heading of a section. 
the messianic idea. She began to read, mechanically at first, and read about a page. That page so shocked a mind accustomed to a purely traditional and mystical interpretation of the Bible that the book dropped abruptly from her hand, and she stood a moment by her husband's table, her fine face pale and frowning. She noticed, with bitterness, Mr. Wendover's name on the title-page. Was it right for Roberts to have such books? Was it wise, was it prudent, for the Christian to measure himself against such antagonism as this? She wrestled painfully with the question. "'Oh, but I can't understand,' she said to herself with an almost agonised energy. "'It is I who am timid, faithless. He must, he must know what they say. He must have gone through the dark places if he is to carry others through them.' So she stilled and trampled on the inward protest. She yearned to speak of it to Robert, but something withheld her. In her passionate wifely trust she could not bear to seem to question the use he made of his time and thought, and a delicate moral scruple warned her she might easily allow her dislike of the Wendover friendship to lead her into exaggeration and injustice. But the stab at that moment recurred, dealt now by one slight incident, now by another. And after the squire's departure Catherine suddenly realised that the whole atmosphere of their home life was changed. Robert was giving himself to his people with a more scrupulous energy than ever. Never had she seen him so pitiful, so full of heart for every human creature. His sermons, with their constant imaginative dwelling on the earthly life of Jesus, affected her now with a poignancy, a pathos, which was almost unbearable. And his tenderness to her was beyond words. But with that tenderness there was constantly mixed a note of remorse, a painful self-depreciation, which he could hardly notice in speech, but which every now and then wrung her heart. And in his parish work he often showed a depression, an irritability, entirely new to her. He, who had always the happiest power of forgetting to-morrow all the rubs of to-day, seemed now quite incapable of saving himself and his cheerfulness in the old ways, nay, had developed a capacity for sheer worry she had never seen in him before. And meanwhile, all the old gossips of the place spoke their mind freely to Catherine on the subject of the rector's looks, coupling their remarks with a variety of prescriptions, out of which Robert did sometimes manage to get one of his old laughs. His sleeplessness, too, which had always been a constitutional tendency, had become now so constant and wearing that Catherine began to feel a nervous hatred of his bookwork and of those long mornings at the hall, a passionate wish to put an end to it and carry him away for a holiday but he would not hear of the holiday, and he could hardly bear any talk of himself. And Catherine had been brought up in a school of feeling which bade love to be very scrupulous, very delicate, and which recognised in the strongest way the right of every human soul to its own privacy, its own reserves. That something definite troubled him, she was certain. What it was, he clearly avoided telling her, and she could not hurt him by impatience. He would tell her soon, when it was right, she cried pitifully to herself. Meantime both suffered, she not knowing why, clinging to each other the while more passionately than ever. One night, however, coming down in her dressing-gown into the study in search of a Christian year she had left behind her, she found Robert with papers strewn before him, his arms on the table, and his head laid down upon them. He looked up as she came in, and the expression of his eyes drew her to him irresistibly. "'Were you asleep, Robert? Do come to bed.' He sat up, and with a pathetic gesture held out his arms to her. 
She came on to his knee, putting her white arms round his neck, while he leant his head against her breast. "'Are you tired with all your walking to-day?' she said presently, a pang at her heart. "'I am tired,' he said, "'but not with walking. "'Does your book worry you? "'You shouldn't work so hard, Robert. "'You shouldn't.' "'He started. "'Don't talk of it. "'Don't let us talk or think at all. "'Only feel.' "'And he tightened his arms round her, "'happy once more for a moment "'in this environment of a perfect love. "'There was silence for a few moments, "'Catherine feeling more and more disturbed and anxious. "'Think of your mountains,' he said presently, "'his eyes still pressed against her, of High Fell and the moonlight, and the house where Mary Backhouse died. Oh, Catherine, I see you still, and shall always see you, as I saw you then, my angel of healing and of grace. I, too, have been thinking of her to-night, said Catherine softly, and of the walk to Shanmore. This evening in the garden it seemed to me as though there were whisperland scents in the air. I was haunted by a vision of bracken and rocks and sheep browsing up the fell slopes. "'Oh, for a breath of the wind on high fell!' cried Robert. "'It was so new to her, the dear voice with his accent in it, of yearning depression. "'I want more of the spirit of the mountains, their serenity, their strength. "'Say to me that dudden sonnet you used to say to—' "'Say to me that dudden sonnet you used to say to me there, "'as you said it to me that last Sunday before our wedding, "'when we walked up the Shanmore Road to say good-bye to that blessed spot.' "'How I sit and think of it sometimes, when life seems to be going crookedly. "'That rock on the fell-side, where I found you, and caught you, and snared you, my dove, for ever.' "'And Catherine, whose mere voice was as balm to this man of many impulses, "'softly, in the midnight silence, those noble lines in which Wordsworth has expressed, "'with the reserve and yet the strength of the great poet, the loftiest yearning of the purest hearts.' Enough, if something from our hand have power to live and move and serve the future hour, and if, as towards the silent tomb we go, through love, through hope and faith's transcendent dower, we feel that we are greater than we know. He has divided all, said Robert, drawing a long breath when she stopped, which seemed to relax the fibres of the inner man. The fever and the fret of human thought the sense of littleness, of impotence, of evanescence, and he has soothed it all. "'Oh, not all, not all!' cried Catherine, her look kindling, and her rare passion breaking through. "'How little in comparison!' For her thoughts were with him, of whom it was said, "'He needeth not that any one should bear witness concerning man, for he knew what was in man.' But Robert's only response was silence, and a kind of quivering sigh. "'Robert!' she cried, pressing her cheek against his temple. "'Tell me, my dear, dear husband, what it is troubles you. Something does. I am certain, certain.' "'Catherine, wife, beloved,' he said to her, after another pause, in a tone of strange tension she never forgot. "'Generations of men and women have known what it is to be led spiritually into the desert, into that outer wilderness where even the Lord was tempted.' What am I that I should claim to escape it? And you cannot come through it with me, my darling. No, not even you. It is loneliness. It is solitariness itself. And he shuddered. But pray for me. Pray that he may be with me, and that at the end there may be light. He pressed her to him convulsively, then gently released her. 
His solemn eyes, fixed upon her as she stood there beside him, seemed to forbid her to say a word more. She stooped. She laid her lips to his. It was a meeting of soul with soul. Then she went softly out, breaking the quiet of the house by a stifled sob as she passed upstairs. Oh, but at last she thought she understood him. She had not passed her girlhood, side by side with a man of delicate fibre, of melancholy and scrupulous temperament, and within hearing of all the natural interests of a deeply religious mind, religious biography, religious psychology, and, within certain sharply defined limits, religious speculation, without being brought face to face with the black possibilities of doubts and difficulties as barriers in the Christian path. Has not almost every Christian of illustrious excellence been tried and humbled by them? Catherine looked back upon her own youth, could remember certain crises of religious melancholy, during which she had often dropped off to sleep at night on a pillow wet with tears. They had passed away quickly, and for ever. But she went back to them now, straining her eyes through the darkness of her own past, recalling her father's days of spiritual depression, and the few difficult words she had sometimes heard from him as to those bitter times of religious dryness and hopelessness, by which God chastens from time to time his most faithful and heroic souls. A half-contempt awoke in her for the unclouded serenity and confidence of her own inner life. If her own spiritual experience had gone deeper, she told herself with the strangest self-blame, she would have been able now to understand Robert better, to help him more. She thought, as she lay awake after those painful moments in the study, the tears welling up slowly in the darkness, of many things that had puzzled her in the past. She remembered the book she had seen on his table, her thoughts travelled over his months of intercourse with the squire, and the memory of Mr. Newcombe's attitude towards the man whom he conceived to be his lord's adversary, as contrasted with Robert's, filled her with a shrinking pain she dared not analyse. Still, all through, her feeling towards her husband was in the main akin to that of the English civilian at home towards English soldiers abroad, suffering and dying that England may be great. She had sheltered herself all her life from those deadly forces of unbelief which exist in English society, by a steady refusal to know what, however, any educated university man must perforce know. But such a course of action was impossible for Robert. He had been forced into the open, into the full tide of the Lord's battle. The chances of that battle are many, and the more courage, the more risk of wounds and pain. But the great captain knows. The great captain does not forget his own. For never, never had she the smallest doubt as to the issue of this sudden crisis in her husband's consciousness, even when she came nearest to apprehending its nature. As well might she doubt the return of daylight, as dream of any permanent eclipse descending upon the faith which had shone through every detail of Robert's ardent, impulsive life, with all its struggles, all its failings, all its beauty, since she had known him first. The dread did not even occur to her. In her agony of pity and reverence, she thought of him as passing through a trial, which is especially the believer's trial, the chastening by which God proves the soul he loves. Let her only love and trust in patience. So that, day by day, as Robert's depression still continued, Catherine surrounded him with the tenderest and wisest affection. Her quiet common sense made itself heard, forbidding her to make too much of the change in him, which might, after all, she thought, be partly explained 
by the mere physical results of his long strain of body and mind during the Mile End epidemic. And for the rest she would not argue, she would not inquire. She only prayed that she might so leave the Christian life beside him that the Lord's tenderness, the Lord's consolation, might shine upon him through her. It had never been her wont to speak to him much about his own influence, his own effect, in the parish. To the austerer Christian considerations of this kind are forbidden. It is not I, but Christ that worketh in me. But now, whenever she came across any striking trace of his power over the weak or the impure, the sick or the sad, she would in some way make it known to him, offering it to him in her delicate tenderness, as though it were a gift that the father had laid in her hand for him, a token that the master was still indeed with his servant, and that all was fundamentally well. And so much, perhaps, the contact with his wife's faith, the power of her love, wrought in Robert, that during these weeks and months he also never lost his own certainty of emergence from the shadow which had overtaken him. And indeed, driven on from day to day as he was, by an imperious intellectual thirst which would be satisfied, the religion of his heart, the imaginative emotional habit of years, that incessant drama which the soul enacts with the divine powers to which it feels itself committed, lived and persisted through it all. Feeling was untouched. The heart was still passionately on the side of all its old loves and adorations, still blindly trustful that in the end, by some compromise as yet unseen, they would be restored to it intact. Sometime towards the end of July, Robert was coming home from the hall before lunch, tired and worn, as the morning always left him, and meditating some fresh sheets of the squire's proofs which had been in his hands that morning. On the road crossing that to the rectory, he suddenly saw Reginald Newcombe, thinner and whiter than ever, striding along as fast as cassock and cloak would let him, his eyes on the ground and his wide awake drawn over them. He and Ellesmere had scarcely met for months, and Robert had lately made up his mind that Newcombe was distinctly less friendly, and wished to show it. Ellesmere had touched his arm before Newcombe had perceived anyone near him. Then he drew back with a start. "'Ellesmere, you here! I had an idea you were away for a holiday.' "'Oh, dear, no,' said Robert, smiling. "'I may get away in September, perhaps. Not till then.' "'Mr. Wendover at home?' said the other, his eyes turning to the hall, of which the chimneys were just visible from where they stood. "'No, he's abroad.' "'You and he have made friends, I understand,' said the other abruptly, his eagle look returning to Ellesmere. "'I hear of you as always together.' "'We have made friends, and we walk a great deal when the squire is here,' said Robert, meeting Newcombe's harshness of tone with a bright dignity. Mr. Wendover has even been doing something for us in the village. You should come and see the new institute. The roof is on, and we shall open it in August or September. The best building of the kind in the country by far, and Mr. Wendover's gift. "'I suppose you use the library a great deal?' said Newcombe, paying no attention to these remarks, and still eyeing his companion closely. "'A great deal.' Robert had at that moment under his arm a German treatise on the history of the Logos doctrine, which afterwards, looking back on the little scene, he thought it probable Newcombe recognised. They turned towards the rectory together, Newcombe still asking abrupt questions as to the squire, the length of time he was away, Ellesmere's work, parochial and literary, during the past six months, the numbers of his Sunday congregation, of his communicants, etc. Ellesmere bore his catechism with perfect temper, 
that Newcombe's manner had in it a strange and almost judicial imperativeness. Elsmere, said his questioner presently, after a pause, I go to have a retreat for priests at the clergy house next month. Father H., mentioning a famous high churchman, will conduct it. You would do me a special favour. And suddenly the face softened and shone with all its old magnetism on Elsmere. If you would come, I believe you would find nothing to dislike in it or in our rule, which is a most simple one. Robert smiled and laid his hand on the other's arm. No, Newcombe, no. I'm in no mood for H. The high churchman looked at him with a quick and painful anxiety visible in the stern eyes. "'Will you tell me what that means?' "'It means,' said Robert, clasping his hands tightly behind him, his pace slackening a little to meet that of Newcombe, "'it means that if you will give me your prayers, Newcombe, your companionship sometimes, your pity always, I will thank you from the bottom of my heart. But I am in a state just now when I must fight my battles for myself, and in God's sight only.' It was the first burst of confidence which had passed his lips to any one but Catherine. Newcombe stood still, a tremor of strong emotion running through the emaciated face. "'You're in trouble, Elsmere. I felt it, I knew it, when I first saw you.' "'Yes, I'm in trouble,' said Robert quietly. "'Opinions?' "'Opinions, I suppose, or facts,' said Robert, his arms dropping wearily beside him. "'Have you ever known what it is to be troubled in mind, I wonder, Newcombe?' And he looked at his companion with a sudden pitiful curiosity. A kind of flash passed over Mr. Newcombe's face. "'Have I ever known?' he repeated vaguely, and then he drew his thin hand, the hand of the ascetic and the mystic, hastily across his eyes, and was silent, his lips moving, his gaze on the ground, his whole aspect that of a man wrought out of himself by a sudden passion of memory. Robert watched him with surprise, and was just speaking when Mr. Newcombe looked up, every drawn, attenuated feature working painfully. "'Did you never ask yourself, Elsmere,' he said slowly, "'what it was drove me from the bar and journalism to the East End? "'Do you think I don't know?' And his voice rose, his eyes flamed. "'What black devil it is that is gnawing at your heart now? "'Why, man, I've been through darker gulfs of hell than you have ever sounded.' Many a night I have felt myself mad, mad of doubt, a castaway on a shoreless sea, doubting not only God or Christ, but myself, the soul, the very existence of good. I find only one way out of it, and you will find only one way. The little hand caught Robert's arm impetuously. The voice with its accent of fierce conviction was at his ear. Trample on yourself. Pray down the German. Fast, scourge, kill the body, that the soul may live. What are we, miserable worms, that we should defy the Most High, that you should set our wretched faculties against his omnipotence? Submit, submit, humble yourself, my brother. Fling away the freedom which is your ruin. There is no freedom for man, either a slave to Christ or a slave to his own lusts. There is no other choice. Go away. Exchange your work here for a time for work in London. You have too much leisure here. Satan has too much opportunity. I foresaw it. I foresaw it when you and I first met. I felt I had a message for you, and here I deliver it. In the Lord's name I bid you fly, I bid you yield in time. 
Better to be the Lord's captive than the Lord's betrayer. The wasted form was drawn up to its full height. The arm was outstretched. The long cloak fell back from it in long folds. Voice and eye were majesty itself. Robert had a tremor of responsive passion. How easy it sounded, how tempting, to cut the knot, to mutilate and starve the rebellious intellect which would assert itself against the soul's purest instincts. Newcomb had done it. Why not he? And then, suddenly, as he stood gazing at his companion, the spring sun and murmur all about them, another face, another life, another message flashed on his inmost sense, the face and life of Henry Gray. Words torn from their context, but full for him of intensest meaning, passed rapidly through his mind. God is not wisely trusted when declared unintelligible. Such honour rooted in dishonour stands, such faith unfaithful makes us falsely true. God is for ever reason, and his communication, his revelation, is reason. He turned away with a slight sad shake of the head. The spell was broken. Mr. Newcombe's arm dropped, and he moved sombrely on beside Robert, the hand which held the little book of hours against his cloak trembling slightly. At the wretched gate he stopped. Goodbye. I must go home. You won't come in. No, no, Newcombe. Believe me, I am no rash, careless egotist, risking wantonly the most precious things in life. But the call is on me, and I must follow it. All life is God's, and all thoughts, but only a fraction of it. He cannot let me wander very far. But the cold fingers he held so warmly dropped from his, and Newcombe turned away. A week afterwards, or there or thereabouts, Robert had in some sense followed Newcombe's counsel. Admonished perhaps by sheer physical weakness as much as by anything else, he had for the moment laid down his arms. He had yielded to an invading feebleness of the will, which refused, as it were, to carry on the struggle any longer at such a life-destroying pitch of intensity. The intellectual oppression of itself brought about wild reaction and recoil, and a passionate appeal to that inward witness of the soul which holds its own long after the reason has practically ceased to struggle. It came about in this way. One morning he stood reading in the window of the library the last of the squire's letters. It contained a short but masterly analysis of the mental habits and idiosyncrasies of St. Paul, apropos of St. Paul's witness to the resurrection. Every now and then, as Ellesmere turned the pages, the orthodox protest would assert itself. The orthodox arguments make themselves felt as though mechanical, involuntary protest. But their force and vitality was gone. Between the pall of Anglican theology and the fiery, fallible man of genius, so weak logically, so strong in poetry, in rhetoric, in moral passion, whose portrait has been drawn for us by a free and temperate criticism, the rector knew, in a sort of dull way, that his choice was made. The one picture carried reason and imagination with it, the other contented neither. But as he put down the letter, something seemed to snap within him. Some cord of physical endurance gave way. For five months he had been living intellectually at a speed no man maintains with impunity, and this letter of the squire's, with its imperious demands upon the tired, irritable brain, was the last straw. He sank down on the oriel seat, 
the letter dropping from his hands. Outside, the little garden, now a mass of red and pink roses, the hill and the distant stretches of park were wrapped in a thick, sultry mist, through which a dim, far-off sunlight struggled on to the library floor, and lay in ghostly patches on the polished boards and lower ranges of books. The simplest religious thoughts began to flow over him. The simplest childish words of prayer were on his lips. He felt himself delivered. He knew not how or why. He rose deliberately, laid the squire's letter among his other papers, and tied them up carefully. Then he took up the books which lay piled on the squire's writing-table, all those volumes of German, French, and English criticism, liberal or apologetic, which had been accumulating round him day by day with a feverish, toilsome impartiality, and began rapidly and methodically to put them back in their places on the shelves. "'I've done too much thinking, too much reading,' he was saying to himself as he went through his task. "'Now let it be the turn of something else.' And still, as he handled the books, it was as though Catherine's figure glided backwards and forwards beside him, across the smooth floor, as though her hands were on his arm, her eyes shining into his. Ha! <laughs> he knew well what it was that had made the sharpest sting of this wrestle through which he had been passing. It was not merely religious dread, religious shame, that terror of disloyalty to the divine images which had filled the soul's inmost shrine since its first entry into consciousness, such as every good man feels in a like strait. This had been strong indeed, but men are men, and love is love. Aye, it was to the dark certainty of Catherine's misery that every advance in knowledge and intellectual power had brought him nearer. It was from that certainty that he now, and for the last time, recoiled. It was too much, it could not be borne. He walked home, counting up the engagements of the next few weeks, the school treat, two club field days, a sermon in the county town, the probable opening of the new workmen's institute, and so on. Oh, to be through them all, and away, away amid alpine scents and silences! He stood a moment beside the grey, slowly moving river, half hidden beneath the rank flower-growth, the tansy and willow-herb, the luxuriant elder and trailing brambles of its august banks, and thought with hungry passion of the clean-swept alpine pasture, the fir-woods, and the tameless mountain streams. In three weeks or less he and Catherine should be climbing the Jammon or the Don du Midi. Until then he would want all his time for men and women. Books should hold him no more. Catherine only put her arms round his neck in silence when he told her. The relief was too great for words. He, too, held her close, saying nothing. But that night, for the first time for weeks, Ellesmere's wife slept in peace and woke without dread of the day before her. End of Book 3 Chapter 25